0: Hello and welcome to another Arseblog Arscast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hello and welcome to another Arseblog Arscast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hello and welcome to another Arseblog Arscast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hello and welcome to another Arsblog Arscast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Then put your little hand in my... Hello and welcome to another Nah, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Did someone say groundhog day? Groundhog evening, groundhog afternoon, groundhog 12 noon kickoff, groundhog season. Feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Because we've had one of those weeks I mean, normally we get them in November and we've kind of put them to one side by now. But November, by our standards, was reasonably good. And now we're having it in December instead. Having lost to Manchester United, we had two away games against two teams that I think should be very beatable. Southampton away from home. Yes, of course, we have had our difficulties there down the years. We've had some bad days. We've had some bad results. But when you look at what they've done this season, four wins all season long, that's all. That's it. And we made them look good. And they're not very good. They're not very good at all. I know they could have had three goals in the opening 10, 15 minutes, but that's on us because of the way we started that game. Much like the way we started the Manchester United game. In the end, we got a point, thanks to Olivier Giroud, but I think our 1-1 draw there was put into perspective by the 4-1 win Leicester had there during the week. On Wednesday night, Leicester went there and wiped the floor with Southampton. Absolutely just blitzed them. And I think you have to put that in the context of our 1-1 draw, a disappointing two points dropped on the road. Then you go to West Ham and the manager changes his formation, picks a very strange team. Uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles at left-back, okay, fine. You know, you've got a left-back, Nacho Monreal. He's a good left-back. And you've got other central defensive options, you know, like Callum Chambers and Rob Holding. They could play the centre of defence. But, you know, if you really, really, really want to play Nacho Monreal as part of a a central defensive duo, you can do that and then also play Said Kolasinac uh, at left-back because, you know, that's his his natural position. But, no, you play a 20-year-old. You give him his first Premier League start... A right-footed player playing at left back. In a team with six left-footed players, you've got a right-footed player at left back. It's like, what are you doing? And Maitland-Niles was quite good on the night. You know, he worked hard. He's a young man making his Premier League debut. He didn't do a lot wrong. But really, what what is the thinking behind that team selection? I don't really get it. You know, particularly when uh, Maitland-Niles is supposedly a defensive midfield player. That's what Arsene Wenger said about him a couple of weeks ago. He's, just, he's a defensive midfield player. That's where he's going to be. You know, it's not as if our midfield couldn't do with a bit of a shakeup. Maybe if you're going to be radical, if you're going to be a bit crazy in terms of your team selection, why not, on a night like that, play Maitland-Niles as a defensive midfield player and you've still got Ozil or Wilshire or Ozil and Jack or whatever combination you want to pick in there with him to help him in that three-man midfield, how about that? Would that make sense? I don't know if it would make sense. It might make sense to you know us on paper. Maybe there were other uh, reasons behind the decisions that he took in terms of his team, but it didn't work out. We didn't score. We looked uh, toothless despite all the possession. And in the end, A disappointing nil-nil. We could not find a way through a West Ham defence that has, until recently, been fairly porous and rubbish. Maybe David Moyes has got that magic defensive touch, but come on, David Moyes, magic defensive touch. It's an unbeaten week, but a week which has been hugely disappointing all the same. And with me, to talk about that, to talk about other things going on at Arsenal, and also to talk about a great article he wrote this week in the New York Times, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Chief Soccer Correspondent for the New York Times, Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Hi, mate. How are you doing? I'm all right. Uh, Not much the better for having watched Arsenal on Wednesday night. A frustrating uh, evening for, I guess, Arsenal fans and for anyone that had to watch that game because it's uh, it's very difficult to see this Arsenal team and try and figure out what exactly it is they're trying to do with the way that they play football right now.
1: It was um, it was really boring. Yeah, that is my 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 hot take on the West Ham Arsenal game is it was just (laughs) a really I mean, sort of credit to West Ham for doggedness and effort and industry and all that, but. I was there was a real lack of kind of pep and zip about Arsenal, but <clears throat> I guess it's partly natural because th- this is a really intense Christmas period, and the number of games that they're all having to play is is slightly ridiculous, to be perfectly honest. Um, especially when, especially for the top six, who obviously have the resources to deal with it, because they've got European commitments as well. So I, I think it's not surprising that we've seen all of them to an extent, apart from maybe City. Start to kind of slow down a little bit. Liverpool drew as well. Spurs have been a little bit kind of off and on. The bio counts weren't great. Chelsea have dropped points. I think they're all suffering a bit just just as the intensity of the schedule. Yeah. But the thing with Arsenal is that you've seen that you've seen that game so many times before, and you, that same performance, that they, you know, the, the same sort of performance they had at Southampton. That kind of. Listlessness that Arsenal seems to seems to afflict them every so often. Yeah, and then they'll come out of it. I'm sure I've, I've done this gag before with you, but they'll come out of it. They'll win like four games in a row, and everyone will say, "Oh, you're yeah, starting to get a run together." Then the same thing will happen. It just seems to be this this endless cycle. And more than any of the other six, the, the other five of the top six, Arsenal seems susceptible to it. Just to have these kind of little spells where the fire goes out. I suppose.
0: Yeah. How, how applicable is the the I guess we could talk about fatigue or the schedule or the hecticness, if that's a word, of the schedule, when Arsenal, aside from the others, have not really been using their first team, if you like, in in European competition. I thought it was quite strange ahead of the Southampton game. Arsene Wenger was talking about, well, we don't have the same amount of recovery time as Southampton. Southampton had played maybe on a Tuesday and, and this game was taking place on the Sunday, whatever it was. Arsenal had played on a Thursday, But none of the players who played in that game on a Thursday were going to play in that game against Southampton. And again, he was talking about it uh, after, after the West Ham game. He said, you know, uh, maybe if we played on Sunday and uh, they played on Saturday, it would have been different because they had more physical resources to defend. So he's talking about having a bit of extra time. Of course, it does apply because there were two league games, but I can remember Arsene Wenger talking about Leicester and talking about Chelsea in the years that they won the title, where they said the, the fact that they didn't have European football was an advantage, Arsene Wenger has had the luxury of being able to field two very different teams. So is it a case that he, he's just missing the preparation time for these games, or, or what's going on in his reasoning here?
1: Well, I, I, I don't, want to, don't want to sound cheap, but I can't believe that, that Wenger's missing out on sort of two or three sessions that he'd spend... Adapting Arsenal's play to suit the opposition because that's not how Venga does his job. So no. I think I think there's a rhythm thing, which is one of those horrible intangibles that people laugh about. But I think it's it's tough to get into a rhythm if you you are kind of playing one game, then you're sitting one out, and then you kind of you, you're travelling to. Eastern Europe, but they're not playing. I think all that takes its toll. The travel is a factor because a lot of the players are going, even if they're not playing. Um, and then there is that there is the fact that you're not in that ri- that rhythm of training and the, you know all week or four days building up to uh, to the to the match at the weekend or in midweek or whatever. And the other thing is there's, there's fewer days off, and the days off have less structure to them. I guess they, there's less kind of less of a pattern rather than structure, um, and that that all does take its toll but you are right the, you know the, the sheer fact of the matter is that, that a lot of Arsenal's first team are not playing in the Europa League therefore they have fewer minutes in their legs therefore they should be less susceptible to it but you do to be to be fair to Vendy you, you do see this with a lot of the teams in the Europa League people tend to say oh, it's Thursday Sunday you can't do Thursday Sunday ignoring the fact that Thursday Sunday is no different logically to Wednesday Saturday um which Champions League teams play and don't seem to complain about um the fact that it's every Thursday maybe is a factor rather than occasionally you plan a Tuesday, but I think it's it's just that that it's how packed the schedule becomes, and the fact that you can't have a you know a couple of days off that you do have to get on a plane and travel and that that's tiring and and then you you know you have to warm up you have to do all that stuff you have to do the the analysis sessions on the opposition you have to do the extra training sessions that. Mm-hmm. The, or the, the specific kind of match training sessions that they do as they as they build up to everything during the week, mm. it just makes everything quite complicated. So I think that they maybe shouldn't be quite as affected by it as as the forty te- the five teams in the Champions League. But I do think that there, that there is a legitimacy to to that complaint that that they have had a an intensely busy period yeah. and I, I mean I think the Premier League have overdone it with the, with the Christmas games this year I think there's too many in December you, you have, there's, is there something like 11 in 33 days or something and it's just too much it's it's too much for lots and lots of reasons one of which is that it, it is massively fixing the season in favour of the big teams because they're the only ones with the resources who can cope, cope with it because what you're going to see now is the smaller sides, the, the other 14 who don't have Champions League, Europa League squads i do going to have to play a Champions League, Europa League schedule for a month and they're going to really suffer for it. So... What sort of state it seems like Palace will be in by the end of December? Mm. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I was looking at it the other day, between Carabao Cup and FA Cup, if Arsenal get through the Carabao Cup tie on uh, next Tuesday, they could face 15 games between now and the end of January. So it's, yeah. a, it's a crazy schedule, all right? Uh, and you do wonder maybe if when Arsene Wenger is talking about recovery time, he might be factoring himself into that as well, not so much as, as players. I mean, having to shift your focus from essentially one separate group of players to another must be difficult because it's not something he's had to deal with before either. When he's had European football, it's always been Champions League and there has been an element of rotation, I guess, but he's basically been using the same squad. And what he's asking of his players or trying to to do is, is uh, get two teams functional and he's found it very, very difficult. I think we saw against West Ham where he shifted to a back four Uh, And that's no surprise to me because I think he's spoken about it before. I don't think he's ever really been convinced by a back three. It was a kind of sticking plaster tactical shift because he he had to do something towards the end of last season. The move to a back four uh, is not a surprise, but it's... It's a team that's really struggling to find its identity in terms of how it plays the game, because the Arsenal that we saw against Southampton, the Arsenal that we saw against West Ham, the Arsenal that we've seen for quite a lot of this season is very far removed from the Arsenal that you would associate with Arsene Wenger, the way his teams normally like to play with a bit of uh, swashbuckling, attacking uh, football. He, He just can't seem to get that out of the team, not even this season, but maybe for the last couple of seasons.
1: Yeah, and that that might speak to a larger issue, I guess, than than just the the number of fixtures at the moment and and how he, how hectic the schedule's been over the start of the season. It it always sounds to to, to fans, I think, like one of those excuses that managers trot out, and you, you kind of think, well, you're only, you're only playing, you know, two matches a week. It's not that hard, and you, they're all fit enough to do it. But the point you make about preparation for Wenger and time for him to kind of prepare each game that's that's really important. The freshness. I am I am a great believer in in again it's a horrible intangible but like momentum and, and it is really easy to lose that and then not to be able to, to sort of start it again Liverpool are a great example of that uh, over the last week or so the, this team that was storing loads and loads of goals suddenly has one game where they stop storing goals but so the team changes and then they find it hard to, to get going again and I think that the problem that you have with with constantly chopping and changing for the Europa League and, and the Carabao Cup to a lesser extent is that you the players all have to switch their attention onto those games, whether they play or not. Uh, some of them might might be given a bit of time off, but that then interrupts their schedule. It means that, that you've got players at different different fitness levels, players of different levels of, of freshness, and it's really hard to kind of get everyone moving forward in the same way consistently, because you you don't have time to recover, to prepare, and to to go again. And it it does happen every year with with the teams, particularly in the Europa League. It does it's affected the teams in the Champions League as well to to an extent. The flip side of it is obviously they all have the resources to deal with it, so it shouldn't really be a problem. They should be able to to drop players in and take players out because they, they've they all spent hundreds of millions of pounds on their squad, so it's hard to have any sympathy for them. But certainly when you see performances like like the Southampton game, like the West Ham game, you do kind of think, well, actually, I can understand why one of those might happen, maybe two. The thing with Arsenal is that it's different. As you say, this has happened a lot over the last what three, four, five, ten years. that They have these spells where they where they just they just don't seem to click anymore. And yeah. then they they will come. They'll come good and they'll they'll give someone a, a battering at the Emirates. They'll they'll perform tactically surprisingly well in a bid away game. And then people will think, well, all right, they're through this slump. And then the, the next slump will come around the corner. And and that is a bigger issue than than December 2017. That, that's something that has is, yeah. is been afflicting Arsenal for a long, long time. How, how much
0: of the way that we view Arsenal, and you could probably answer this better as, you know, somebody looking in from the outside uh, rather than with my um, red-tinted glasses or mm-hmm. whatever, but how much of uh, how we view Arsenal or how Arsenal are perceived is linked, inextricably linked, with the length of tenure of Arsene Wenger? Because... it's disappointing it's been a disappointing week from an Arsenal fan's point of view and people are frustrated they're angry one of the overriding uh, emotions that people have expressed this week goes back to what you said very early on is boredom because they feel like they've seen this before time and time again they've lived it they've done it they've worn the t-shirt they've lost the t-shirt found the t-shirt again etc etc but you look at the table okay Arsenal are in 7th but only a point off 4th and, you know, stepping outside and, you know, stepping back a bit, that's not that bad. It's just that it feels like there's this weight, this accumulation of all of this happening again and again and again that seems to, in some way, colour the view of where we are and what we're doing.
1: Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. So I think that the first thing with Arsenal specifically is that, that because we know kind of as, as, a, as a football con- culture, I suppose, that... That there's going to be a whole vendor out thing at the end of the season regardless of what happens because Arsenal does seem to be listing a little bit into not irrelevance but you know there's, there's no title challenge this year there's no obvious improvement mi- you know the, the, this great sort of seismic shock of missing out on the Champions League for the first time in a century uh, last season and then the, there's been no obvious improvement this year That the sense that we are just going round and round in circles is a massive factor yeah. when, when it comes to the way that Arsenal are perceived because there is a you know that the discontent is simmering very, very, very close to the surface. There's, a, there's, there's other stuff going on as well. The, the first thing is that the thing that is kind of massively distorting the league this season is Manchester City played sixteen, played 17, won 16. That, that is having a huge impact. It, 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 it makes, you know, there was this stat that came out today that Liverpool, Spurs and Arsenal are all closer to the relegation zone than they are to the, <laughs> to the, to the top which makes it sound like they're all having terrible seasons but they're not they're all having quite good seasons really uh they both they've all all three of them have had kind of bad spells and good spells and they've flattered to deceive a little bit they're, they're all much of a muchness as far as i can tell um and even chelsea i, I don't think are a, a, a vastly superior to those three um But the fact that they're so far off Man City makes it look like, well, you should be keeping pace with Manchester City. And you think, well, Manchester City are on course to get 116 points. No one should be keeping pace with Manchester City. Manchester City should not be doing what they're doing. It's astonishing what they're doing. And then the other thing is that, and this struck struck me with Atletico Madrid. So I I, I kind of dip in and out of Spanish football. Sometimes my job is kind of all over Europe, you know, to look at football all all over Europe. I, I don't always have both my eyes on La Liga. Uh, and so, so I kind of thought what had happened in La Liga this season was that Barcelona were surprisingly good. Valencia was the, the best story. Real Madrid was struggling a bit. And, and you know, Zidane was maybe... Zidane going would end up being the story. And I, I kind of looked at Atletico and thought, well, you know, they could well be the... This, this could be the end of their... End of, you know, the, the Simeone era. Mm. They've not been beaten. <laughs> they're, they're unbeaten. They've drawn loads of games. But the perception is that they're in crisis. And it's the it's the same with lot with lots of teams now and you it, it's it's really odd to look at the way that certain clubs are perceived and certain results are put through through a, a prism of things related speci- specifically to that club and specifically to to that league and then other kind of other stuff as well in which you you could easily say you could easily construct a narrative of they're having a pretty good season but actually they're being presented as being in complete crisis. It's happened happened to Chelsea, it's happened to Liverpool, it's happened to Manchester United to an extent, that you're kind of led to believe that they're they're these basket cases where everything's going wrong. And then you look at the the table and think, oh, they've only lost twice. That's not very many. And you think, well, they can't kind of... Something doesn't add up. So I, I would say Arsenal's season has been probably what what we expected more or less yeah. maybe a little bit worse because of the results against Southampton and West Ham but it's not they're not massively off track they're just they're in a division with with five other really competitive teams and Burnley and in a division where Manchester City are setting records and they're, they're a club where kind of everyone's naturally kind of predisposed to assuming that they are in crisis mm. and that's the problem
0: Yeah and I guess I, I suppose the thing is with Arsenal as well is that there is like you say, it's bubbling under the surface, but there is an appetite for change and there is an appetite for things to be done differently simply for the sake, not for the sake of doing things differently, but because it's it's the only thing that can refresh uh, or in a way reset fans' um, perceptions or, or expectations in a way. That whether you're Wenger in or whether you're Wenger out, he, he is this kind of this aura that surrounds the football club and yeah it's it's very difficult to look at things outside the prism of Arsene Wenger regardless of of what's happening or, or how it's happening um I suppose interestingly on that there there have been some moves behind the scenes to to shake things up a little bit and to perhaps future-proof the club or or get it ready for life w- without Arsene Wenger a new head of recruitment uh Sven Mislintat and uh Raul Sanyei from from Barcelona, who has been brought in as the uh, definitely not the director of football, yeah. and he starts in uh, he starts in February, I believe. Um, is that
1: his official title, not the director
0: of football. Not, yeah, that's what we're calling him. Not director of football. Certainly not now. Anyway, maybe yeah. in, a, in a in a little while he might assume that that uh, long sought after title at Arsenal. But um, that in in some ways, I think is is giving uh, people something to, to, to look forward to or cling on to. I won't say light at the end of the tunnel because it's not quite that, but there was always this fear that when the Arsene Wenger era came to an end, it was going to come to an end abruptly and the club would have to just start from zero again. But it does look like they're beginning to make some preparations.
1: Yeah, I think what what, the, what they're actually doing is they are they're anti-moising their their future. So that is a good word. United... Manchester United, when Fergie left, didn't make any preparations at all beyond uh, a sort of cursory conversation with Guardiola, a cursory conversation with Klopp, and then giving the job to the fella that, that Sir Alex Ferguson recommended. Um, and there were, you know, there were stories when Moyes arrived of vast suites of empty offices at Carrington because they just for, you know, because Fergie had been so focused on the present, there'd been no attempt to kind of appoint scouts. Mm. There'd be the staff wasn't skeletal as Manchester United, but you know they were they, they hadn't got a structure in place that functioned without this over, overarching manager. And it looks to me like what Desidis and 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 the board have done is, is thought, right, well, at some point we know Wenger will leave, so we have to be ready so that when he does, we can, we're can we in a position to go. So I, Sanyehi I would imagine one of the things he's been told to do is to draw up a list of potential managers to replace Arsene Wenger at the point that Wenger decides he should go. Um, and I would imagine—I I don't know this but knowing Venga a little bit having spent a little bit of time with him and only a little bit I think he's probably sensible enough enough to have been amenable to that process mm. I would doubt that it's been done behind his back I, d- I doubt Desidis is sort of going to Vendor and saying oh, no 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 these guys aren't going to even think about replacing you Arsene I suspect Desidis is saying yeah look we need to know who will replace you when you go and Vendor is a Ferguson, I think, maybe would have had a different response to that. But Vendor, I think, is probably smart enough to think, yeah, do you know what, that, that sounds fair enough to me. Um, it's an interesting approach. And I'm I, I was going to write something ahead of the Classico, which is on the 23rd of December, on the number of, of ex-Barcelona executives and coaches who are all over football now. It's, it, there's millions of them. Um, they're, they're not all necessarily... Quite as good as they as quite as good as they might be. There's this idea, I think, that oh, he worked for Barcelona. Barcelona is the, biggest, yeah. the best club in the world. It, he must be brilliant. I think if you look at their track record, it's not always the case. But Sanjay, he will have experience of of doing high level deals, which I think is probably something that was missing at Arsenal to an extent. Um, tat his record's great. He 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 signed a specific profile of player. Um, not that that's a bad thing but he kind of has once he's got like a special move which is sign a 17 year old Um, and that's he's really he's obviously done that brilliantly at Dortmund he's worked at Dortmund despite the fact that it was a a real kind of really dysfunctional club behind the scenes him and Thomas Tuchel didn't speak to each other they had to have um, there was a guy who had to be like the intermediary between them like passing notes between the two of them like school kids Um, Mr. (laughs) still did his job he still did really well my worry with all of it would be, well, my worry with Mislintat is that I don't think there's anybody really who's who's managed to kind of earn a reputation as a transfer market guru and then, then translate that to another club, with the possible exception of Monchi, who's done it at Sevilla and seems mm. to be doing quite well at Roma. Although it's still very early to say, but yeah. you look at people like Franco Baldini, Steve Walsh, Graham Carr, you know they've all been told these uh, Damien Camoli, these are the people who've mastered the transfer market, and then they go somewhere else and they sign seven terrible players and get sacked. <laughs> um, and I, my, my worry is that we, we, we do tend to think that people have a special key to the transfer market, they sure. don't yeah. and the other broader concern is, can all these people work together because no one in football at that level doesn't have an ego and they don't have to be Arsenal will have to be quite clever to manage the egos behind the scenes the scenes to make sure that everyone is doing what they're meant to be doing and not trying to grab power from everybody else
0: yeah i mean i think it was quite interesting when Wenger said quite quite clearly that uh, mislin tat will be working with him and Ivan Gazidis does not sign players. Ivan Gazidis has got nothing to do with signing players, even though he, he did take up an office at the Arsenal training ground this summer and uh, uh, made the odd suggestion here and there, uh, from what I'm told. But, I mean, do you think the the appointment of someone like tad is Arsenal saying, OK, we know where we are when it comes to, or we know where we are when it comes to the transfer market. We can't get involved in multiple Ninety, hundred million, hundred and twenty million pound transfers. That's just not where where we can operate. Where we can operate is to do in some ways what Wenger did when he first came to Arsenal. is to Is to find the young talent, is to find the the, the gems, the unpolished gems, and bring them into the club and let them develop to the point where they are top uh, top class players.
1: Yeah, you, you you have to assume so. You have to assume that that's what why they they've gone for Mizlin Tat rather than somebody else. Yeah, that he he does have this this track record at signing very talented young players. Um, it's a risky strategy, and I think what Arsenal, what I'd like to think Arsenal would do, is maybe update it for their circumstances. So Dortmund, because of of their position in the Bundesliga, because of their financial position, they had to go for people like Alexander Isaac, who who were seventeen and, you know, not big money, not huge money signings. That whole, Dembélé's the same, that whole kind of raft of young players that he took to to Dortmund were were of that sort of brand of player. They, they were kind of wonder kids, but at the very start of being wonder kids. Whereas I think what Arsenal maybe need is the next level above. So they need to be signing the 20, 21-year-olds who in a couple of years' time will be ready to be sold to Real Madrid and to Manchester City for, sake <laughs> of argument, and PSG, who you know who will be 100 million pound players, but at the moment are still a little bit raw, a little bit fresh, and a little bit cheaper. And I think that's what Arsenal will. That's where they need to be. Not not the Monaco or the Dortmund model, but something in between that and PSG. They, Arsenal do have mm. more money than Monaco and Dortmund. Um, and I think that's what they will probably be trying to get with Mislintat. That mixture between someone who knows where all the best young players are, but they'll be saying to him, "Look, you've got a bit more money, money to spend this time. We can we can get the ones who are a bit a bit closer to being fully ready." if as exciting as as Dortmund were under Tuchel particularly, they did at times look very young, and it's it, you can't have a team of twenty year olds. It doesn't work. You need a bit of experience. You need a couple of really top class players and then you need two or three 18 19 mm. 20 year olds who are the, the you know almost sure things um and i think that's what they'll they'll, they'll be trying to get with midland Tat. Mm. and to be honest i think that makes sense because you know psg and city and maybe real madrid are at the top of the market and and nobody else is going to be there arsenal don't have the the appetite i suppose to to join them they probably do have the money but they they don't have the desire to spend it like that yeah um so what how do you how do you compete you, you get the players quicker smarter better and first and yeah. that's what M- Miss has been brought in to do mm,
0: it'll be interesting to see if uh, if he can make a, that kind of an impact um i just wanted to talk to you briefly about jack wilshire he made his first premier league start of the season uh, against west ham on wednesday night he did Okay. He had a reasonable game, missed a big chance to to score a goal, which I think he'll be kicking himself over. And certainly uh, I'd give him a kick if he was here in front mm. of me right now. But um, good, good to see him back and good to see him starting again. Uh, how do you view what's going to happen with him It feels to me like if Arsenal really wanted him to stay, they would have made some kind of effort to talk about a new deal. But even today, Wilshire is saying there's no update. There's no date in the diary. He said, I've only read what the boss has said in the media about, you know, what his future holds. And he's a guy who can go for free next summer. Um, Does he have to prove more from a fitness point of view or from what he can do on the pitch? Or is it a, a mixture of both at this point?
1: those are probably both relevant but as you say I'm really surprised they haven't they haven't just offered him a new contract simply because as a a very talented if slightly unfulfilled english player jack wilshire has a value mm. and i'm really surprised that, that you know if, if his contract runs out and if he is allowed to leave there will be lots of teams who want to sign him teams that i, I imagine arsenal would consider rivals who want to sign him because when he's fit he's extremely talented and he's English, and there's not many players still around like that. So it baffles me a little bit. It, I, found, I find the Arsenal contract situation generally staggering. Yeah. I don't really understand how it's reached that point. You're not alone but, there. But Wilshere, it's it it the same with Oxlade-Chamberlain before he left. It's almost those ones that surprise me more, because Sanchez and Ozil, I can understand why it might be quite tricky to get them to sign new deals, uh, particularly because of their age. They, they will be thinking, right, we have one big move left in our careers and what do you know in 2018 mm. we don't no one has to pay a transfer fee for us fantastic um that means that's all the money going to them and they can you know they def- from that point on they are they are made they'll have the their pick of the litter in terms of the big clubs of Europe it's it's all set up for them but Wiltshire and Oxford chamberlain they they weren't like that and there are others in that boat as well that they, they weren't like that they were you know they they are players who who I'm sure would kind of want to stay at Arsenal if they're given the opportunity and it just makes so little sense to me particularly because of their, their nationality to let their contracts even get close to running down because if you want to sell them there will always be a market Liverpool paid £40 million pounds for Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain Chamberlain. Yeah. if Wilshire was under contract and Wenders said look you can go even with his fitness problems in the current market he's a £20 million pound player Twenty twenty five million pounds. Somewhat, someone, someone would pay that for Jack Wilshere because it, it partly does his name, but partly does he's English and very gifted. So I think the whole thing is is odd. I guess the fact there's no contracts on the table now probably suggests that Arsenal. Th- that seems like Arsenal trying to say to Wilshire, look, th- maybe go and find somewhere somewhere else to play. Um, but I just find that I find that almost. So illogical that I refuse to believe it.
0: Yeah, I mean, even yeah, I think you make a good point there. Even from a business point of view, you know, if you put a even put a clause in a contract and this is your release fee, which isn't going to be outrageous, you know, you you get the best of both worlds because if he does uh, doesn't reach his potential, or if he doesn't play as well or play as often as he might like, you like you say, you've got the the ability to sell him and earn some money. But if he does play and if he does finally realise some of his potential, and the potential, I think, is something we've all seen, then you're on a winner there as well because you've got a good player.
1: Yeah, if if he's on a four-year contract, you, you don't lose. Arsenal don't lose, whereas now they've got themselves into a position where they can lose. And I'm not sure... But I've got to be relatively careful. I'm not sure if Wilshere will ever fulfil the potential that was ascribed to him when he was much younger. I think he could still become a very good Premier League player, but I don't think he's going to be a kind of top-class international superstar. But at the same time, a very good Premier League player who's English is a really good thing to have. And it's bizarre that no one's looked at that behind the scenes at Arsenal. It's not really a vendor thing, particularly in thought. This is, a, this is an asset to our business. We have to protect that asset so that even if we want to dispense with it, we get money for it. Whereas, you, to be honest, I mean, I know that Man City were linked with him last year and that seemed a bit fanciful, but I can imagine Chelsea thinking, do you know what, Jack Wilshire's not a bad option. I can imagine Liverpool thinking Jack Wilshire's not a bad option. And certainly the level of club below that, so Everton, Southampton, Leicester, they, I mean, they, they would all be delighted to sign Jack Wilshere, and because of the TV deal, they all now have now have loads of money. Yeah. So if you told them that he was not free but twenty million pounds, I'm sure they'd say, yeah, actually, you could certainly tempt one of them to buy him. And I, I, just find the fact that Arsenal have got into that situation not with the superstars, where it's trickier, but with, I don't want to say jobbing professionals, but you know, a level below Sanchez and Özil mm. is, is incredibly poor practice. It really is.
0: I do wonder if there have been fingers burned a little bit along the way because there have been players over the last number of years who Arsenal would have liked to have moved on. And there may be a couple in the squad at this moment in time that they might like to move on. But because of the contracts that they have and because of the wages that they're on, even with the equalization of money throughout the Premier League, they found it very difficult to do that. You know, you've seen players leave at the end of their contracts when you know Abu Dhabi, for example is one mm. uh, and I know he was a special case in terms of uh, in terms of his injuries but you know there was criticism from fans who are going well why are we paying this player X amount of money every week uh, for the next number of years when in reality he hasn't done anything or hasn't proved his fitness but yeah it, it's an interesting one uh, with Jack Wilshere we'll see what happens there. I want to talk to you now about the article that you wrote this week. Well, you probably didn't write it this week, but it was published this week uh, in the New York Times about a former Arsenal player, uh, goalkeeper Stuart Taylor, who won a Premier League medal with Arsenal in in 2002. It was a strange, strange season that for the Arsenal goalkeepers because uh, I think it's the only time three goalkeepers have won a Premier League medal with one club, David Seaman and uh, Richard Wright. Uh, was the other one. And Stuart Taylor was a very young, uh, well thought of, highly uh, regarded young goalkeeper, young English goalkeeper. Um, And his career is one which has often puzzled me and baffled me because for all the potential of his early years, it hasn't translated into playing games. I think there's a is it, was it 95 games,
1: that's all he's played? Yeah, in? 95 senior games, 95 yeah.
0: 95 senior games. And I don't know, whatever level of football you play at, whether you're, you know, if you're playing football or playing 11-a-side football, the idea of not playing every week is just demoralizing and uh, it, it's so hard to deal with. Whether you're Sunday league or you're playing at a decent level, if you're not in the team, it's terrible. And I do wonder about there. There must be something peculiar to the life of the number two, the backup goalkeeper. It's a strange, it's a strange place to be in the world of football.
1: Yeah, do well, you know? I've wanted to write a piece about backup goalkeepers for years, which which might make me sound quite odd. But I find the psychology of it really interesting because, as you say, that they are football players who don't play, and yeah. that is that's bizarre. So I, I kind of. Richard Wright would have been an equally good example. There's a Inter's there's a third choice goalkeeper is a guy called Tommaso Bernie who's not played in, played a game since October 2012, um, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> but Taylor, it seemed, to be fair, it seemed to really strike a, strike a chord. It, it it got it's only it's it's kind of a an imperfect measure, but it got quite a lot of traction on social media, uh, which not everything that that we write about does. Um, and I think there's there's, a, there's kind of a lot at play because I I went intending to talk to him about kind of how he keeps himself going, what it is that keeps him wanting to be a person who trains at a football club and then doesn't play at the weekend and the kind of the psychology of that. But the story that I found wasn't necessarily what what I was expecting. So he's at Southampton now where he went in as a number three, knowing full well, he was not going to play, but that was the, he went there last, so 20, the summer of 2016, I think, um, but that's the only move he's ever made where he he deliberately went not to play. Everywhere else that he's gone since he left Arsenal has been with the the idea of playing, not necessarily as the first choice, but but he was promised that you know he'd get chances chances to prove himself as a second choice, and I think that was enough for him. Um, and it, it, it was interesting talking to him not just about kind of how he how he sees his job now as being kind of the, the backup, the guy who helps warm up the goalkeepers, Um but also. Talking through kind of the choices that he made and the issue of regret, really, because he, he didn't use the word regret, but he clearly, I think he does think a lot about his career. I think he thinks a lot about the choices that he's made and the decisions he made and whether he would make them again if he had his time
0: over yeah I mean people would ask why uh, you know when he left Arsenal and you could understand why he left Arsenal he had an injury and then uh, Lehman came in and I think it was Manuel Almunia who was brought in to to back up yeah Um, you know obviously every player wants to play at the highest possible level that they can but the path to that Level, let's say, is not uh, it's not the same. You don't have to go just in one one way. So you hmm. can take a step backwards, perhaps to take a step forwards. And I know what you were, you said in the piece that you know he was promised this, he was promised that, he was promised the other. But there must come a time where you go, okay, all these people are making me promises. And I'm, and they're not fulfilling them. They're not, they're not following up on what they've said to me. Maybe it's time to take a different direction. So you get to even 28, 29 years of age, which is still relatively young in the in the life of a goalkeeper. Mm. Uh, Lehman didn't join Arsenal till he was 33. So I, I, at that point, maybe okay, I've got to step down. I've got to go to a Championship side. I've got to go to a League One side. And if I can play there regularly, and if I can show people what I'm capable of, maybe that's what will get me a move to a club where I can play at at a higher level. I mean, uh, it seems odd to me that that is not something
1: that he did. Yeah, so I think there's, in terms of the moves he's made, and it's it's, it's odd, it's an odd experience kind of interviewing someone and then writing a piece about them and then kind of, Lots of on Twitter, I've had loads and loads of people say, "This is what I think of Taylor." This is what I, you know, this is what I think of Taylor. This is what he should have done, and you find yourself defending him. And I'm, I'm not Stuart Taylor's spokesman. Stuart Taylor's made the decision he's made decisions he's made, and he's, he doesn't he didn't seem to me to be asking for sympathy. He's just relatively contemplative about them. I think he went to Villa because uh, he, I think he he felt he could dislodge Thomas Sorensen, who was the number one there at the time. Uh, City, the City move is the one that I don't, I don't really understand. That was 2009, I think. Um, Shay Given was their number one. He was going as a backup. Uh, again, he was promised he'd get to play in the League Cup and what have you, but, but I, that's the point at which I think he maybe should think, right, OK, I've had four tough years at Villa not playing. Now is the time to go somewhere that I would play. I think, I think that's how I'd react. And then since City, he had a few loan spells uh, and then... He quit the game altogether after a, a very unhappy experience at Leeds and then got sort of enticed back to Southampton as a as a third choice. Mm. But it's the City one is that's the transfer that I don't necessarily get. I think that, that strikes me as being a poor decision. Villa I can understand. I, I think that he probably looked at it and thought that that he stood sort of a chance there. And there's lots of things with players that is that are never taken into account. So or not maybe not taken into account enough. So a lot of the accusations that I had on Twitter about Taylor. With that, he he simply just wanted the money. He wanted to take the money. He was happy not to play. He sacrificed his talent for for his bank balance. And even you can, you can understand why people reach that conclusion. I don't find that especially convincing with most players. I don't think money is their main driving factor. Um, it tends to be something else. M- money is a measure of status, and obviously they they don't take pay cuts. But then nobody takes pay cuts. Nobody wants No one voluntarily. Very few people voluntarily go to a different job for less money. Yeah. Um, it's not abnormal to be a bit like well I, I quite like to earn the amount of money that I earn at the moment that's very much um, and then there's kind of peer status that it becomes important to as well the best example of which is Ashley Cole um, who wasn't upset that and this, I have no loyalty to Ashley Cole but he, Ashley Cole wasn't upset because he needed he needed £55,000 a week to live on he was upset because it, that is a gauge of how much Arsenal valued him and he didn't feel it was enough That's the mm. that, that was kind of the motivation there so I don't buy the idea that it was money I think the thing with most players is is belief and that's what gets them into trouble. So they all, literally all of them, back to themselves. So when you get a kid signing for Chelsea at 17 and you think, God, why are you signing for Chelsea? You're never going to play for Chelsea. The kid thinks, I'm good enough to play for Chelsea. I will play for Chelsea. I will. I will be the exception that proves the rule. And that's how everybody in football pretty much thinks. Mm. So I think the thing with Taylor is that he made lots of decisions because... He felt, I will go in as a backup and I will prove how good I am, which I understand with the possible exception of City, which again, I would say was a, a relatively odd decision. And the other thing is that he, he wasn't being told, you're not good enough to play. He was being told, come here, you'll be number two, but you'll get your chance and you know you might be able to dislodge the number one. Rather than being told, come here, you're not going to play, and then being told the, the other option is to go and play in the championship where you will play. And to be honest, the money would be pretty much the same. Um, the job, I suppose, is more stressful in the championship. But then, at the same time, is it more stressful because the Premier League is much, much more intense, much, much higher kind of profile? So, I, I think he made the decision. I want, I believe, I'm a Premier League goalkeeper, so I don't want to drop down because that means admitting to myself that I'm not a Premier League goalkeeper. These people are telling me that I will get chances to play, and I back myself to prove that I'm better than this other guy. Yeah, and I do. I agree with you completely. I think after a while, he. It, it, that thinking is naive and it, there comes a point and as I say for me it would have been in 2009 when he went to City where you probably have to think do you know what I need to play now I have to go and play um, Whether the, the one thing I don't know is whether he had other, what his other options were when he signed for City yeah. Yeah. it may be that because he'd had sort of three years on the sidelines at Villa just sitting and watching C- City might have been by some distance the best the best offer he had um, it might have been an alternative of going to a championship club and being a reserve. Which, mm. if you going not be a reserve in the championship or a reserve in the Premier League, you'd be a reserve in the Premier League. Yeah. Um, so no, it's, it, I think all of this is what made what made me so interested in his story. Does he? He has. He's living with the consequences of, de- of his decisions, and his decisions are not the ones that people think they would make. But when you listen to him explain them, you think actually, do you know what? There, there is kind of a logic there. Yeah. Again, you might not agree with it, but it's hard to say he's not he's not done something incomprehensible at any point
0: do you, i mean what 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 kind of an insight did you get into the, the the psychology of someone who obviously deliberately chooses to be a backup goalkeeper you know based on the decisions he made and the, the 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 contracts he was offered from those various clubs you make that decision okay i'm going in here as the number 2 even with your ambition to be number 1 you're still making a choice to be the number mm. 2 which i think is a weird place to be um, and maybe not just for for goalkeepers but I think it's more more acute in goalkeepers isn't it because yeah. they don't tend to get injured as much they don't tend to get changed as much in, uh, unless there's some disaster in terms of form and what have you but there there must be or it must be a, a difficult kind of a life as a professional leaving aside the money and everything else it must be a difficult thing because when you are chosen when you are given a chance or when you are called upon perhaps in a crisis you have to be as ready as you were, uh, would be if you were playing every week and that's really difficult you talked about momentum earlier players uh, getting into momentum and um, playing themselves into form but if you're coming in cold it's it's a really strange uh, position to be in i
1: think it is it's and that, again that's that's the fascinating thing about it that that how do you maintain that professionalism that you have to maintain and he said that himself, that if you, if you just go in and sort of mess around in training, you won't be ready. And then on the, on the weekend, suddenly your, goalkeeper gets in, your main goalkeeper gets injured in the warm-up and you have to play and you make a fool of yourself. Um, and that, I was really interested in, in kind of how he manages to maintain that, that focus. Uh, I think what happened to him at Arsenal is really important in that, because he said himself, that proves to him that, that every club needs three goalkeepers. And there does come a time where actually you might be third choice, but you might play. Uh, so he, that taught him to always be ready. Um, and I think the fact that he keeps getting signed as a backup is probably testament to the fact that he is a, a good professional in the sense that he will, you know, he doesn't go in just to mess around. He doesn't yeah. just take the money. You know, a, a, clubs talk to each other, football's a village. They they would find, people would find out if Stuart Taylor was a bad influence and he clearly isn't. He speaks to people who worked with him, it's quite the opposite. Um, he said that, the you know, the competitive streak of him in terms of training is what gets him through the day to day that he wants to make more saves than the other goalkeepers. He wants to stop the strikers scoring. Uh, but I think in, in kind of a lot lar- from the, from the larger perspective, I think he's really struggled with it at times. I think he's found it really hurtful to, and again, whether he's naive or not is a different debate, but to, to be told that he could, that he would go to a club and play this game, this game and this game, and then not play those games, I think has, has really hurt him at times. And there was a, a vulnerable. I don't want to sound all kind of psychobabble <laughs> but there was a, a vulnerability to him when he was talking about Villa and Leeds in particular. The anger is still fairly, fairly close to the surface with him about what happened. And I think he is... There was a point when he left Leeds where he retired uh, and he just said he was completely fed up with football and the way he talked about it, you, you kind of think it sounded like an abusive relationship almost that he just couldn't do it anymore. That Mm. he couldn't kind of be around this environment that had brought him so much hope initially, and then so much disappointment. And that is partly through his own choices. I think that's probably fair to say, but partly it's through no fault of his own that he was, he was missold an idea and missold destinations. And that's what's, that's what led him into a career that he didn't really want to have. And he's quite he's quite a bubbly happy sort of, larger than life character and he's he's a very nice man to spend a, a couple of hours with. And I think he tries to make the best of it. But I know from other people at Southampton that he it is something he wrestles with, kind of regret and whether he made the right decisions. And it must be tough for him because he was really highly really highly rated at Arsenal. Mm. He played for England at all the age group levels. He was at Lillershaw. He was he was supposed to be kind of the next big thing. And a, him yeah. and Richard Wright. And it must be difficult. must be really difficult at 37. To look back and think, when you were 18, you had all this promise in the whole world in front of you, and then this is the career you've had. And he's not saying that he's had a terrible life or that he's destitute or yeah. that people should feel sorry for him. But I think it's it's really important to remember kind of what he, th- what he would have thought he was going to be and how that it sort of interacts with what he became. Mm. That's where the tension is and that's where the interest is, I think, yeah. as a journalist,
0: anyway. For sure. I mean, look, I remember Bob Wilson talking about him very highly and he did pick up that injury. You think what kind of career trajectory he would have been on if he hadn't had that injury, you know, if Arsenal hadn't brought in Manuel Almunia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It just shows you how football can take you in, in different directions. The well, piece... yeah. funny enough, I, yeah, I, well, think
1: he, I think one of his regrets is leaving Arsenal. Right. So he, when when Wender signed Almunia, he... Taylor went in and said, I want my place back as number two to Lehman And Vendor said, no, a bit of a problem. Uh, The only way I could sign Almunia was by promising him he'd be the backup. At which point Taylor said, right, I want to go. And I think he then went on loan to Leicester and then left the following summer for Villa. Mm. But talking to him, I just wonder whether he maybe looked back at kind of the Manuel Almunia thing and wonders whether maybe if he just waited it out he probably would have replaced Manuel Almunia as Layman's backup anyway, because yeah. Manuel Almunia wasn't that good a goalkeeper. So I think that is one of his regrets. I think he feels that perhaps, and he wanted to be at Arsenal, that's where he wanted to be, he maybe could have stayed rather than going to Villa, and he might have got his place as number two back, and then when Lehman goes, you never know. Maybe yeah. Maybe Taylor gets a chance at number one, and I think that is one of his regrets.
0: Well, look, it's a, it's a great piece. Uh, we'll link to it on the blog today. People can find it on, uh, on com, And the uh, piece, obviously, is on the New York Times. Uh, we better leave it there. I've taken up far too much of your time, but it's fascinating as always. Rory, thanks a million.
1: Lovely to talk to you, mate. Take care.
0: Thank you very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter at Rory Smith. That is at Rory Smith. And if you want to read the article about Stuart Taylor, you will find a link to it on the blog today or on the post on arsblog.com that contains this particular podcast. Just uh, click into that and you will find a link to the article. Go read. Uh, It's fascinating stuff. So look, there's not a lot else to talk about other than the fact we play Newcastle tomorrow at home. Our home record until Manchester United has been great. Uh, Do we need to talk about bouncing back? Do we need to talk about learning lessons? Do we need to talk about turning things around, about being more efficient, about, you know, I think what we should do really is just turn up and win the fucking game. How about that? Let's not overthink it, Arsenal. Let's not pretend to be tired. Let's not pretend to be jaded. Let's not talk about recovery time or fatigue or any of those things. We have got football matches to win and doing that on Saturday would be, Well, it would be very welcome. It would make all our lives a lot less complicated and indeed quite a bit more enjoyable. So, Arsenal, if you're listening to this, if you could see to it that you go out on Saturday against Newcastle and score more goals than them, I don't care if it's 8-7, 7-6, 4-0, 12-0, 1-0, just once you score more than them, I'm okay with that for this weekend. After the week we've had, I'm happy to take a baby step forward in the right direction. James and I will be here, of course, on Monday. We'll have an Arscast extra. For you looking back at the weekend, so fingers crossed we've got something enjoyable to talk about then. Thank you as ever for listening, I really do appreciate it. Whatever Arsenal do, have yourselves a great weekend. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers, bye bye.
2: Welcome back to Sky Sports News. That was a pulsating Manchester derby. Manchester City running out 4-0 winners at Old Trafford. We'll have discussion of that in just a moment. For now, some of the headlines. Sam Allardyce is up on an FA charge for eating Santa Claus, leaving millions of children disappointed around the world before Christmas. The Everton manager said, I just thought it was a really red duck. Meanwhile, Arsene Wenger says the reason his team can't score goals at the moment is because of the unsatisfactory ending to the TV series Lost. The Frenchman says his players have been enjoying the box set of the series on the coach journeys to and from games, but have been left traumatized by an ending which makes little sense. And finally, after the incredible revelation last week that he was not from Portugal and was actually a farmer from County Kerry, Ireland, Cristiano Ronaldo, or Tigo Flaherty, as he's now asked to be known, has given his first interview. Well, I just wanted to see how long I could keep up the pretense. Quite long indeed, is the answer. We'll have more from that later. Now with us to discuss that Manchester derby, a completely impartial and not at all biased journalist, Declan Forts. Declan, not a great day for Jose Mourinho, losing 4-0 at Old Trafford to the old enemy. Well, yeah, you could look at it that way, or the other way you could look at it is the fact that two Manchester City goals were offside. One was a penalty, which should never have been given because it wasn't a foul, even though he tripped him up in the box. And the other goal was an own goal, which in reality is a goal scored by... Manchester United and at the other end Manchester United did have the ball in the net even though it was disallowed for handball by Ibrahimovic. It wasn't handball even though he very clearly punched the ball into the back of the net but if you look at the replays you can see that Ibrahimovic was only going to brush his hair out of his eyes so he could head the ball and Fernandinho clatters into Ibrahimovic and forces his hand forward in a punching style and that is why the ball was handled into the net so when you look at it, Manchester United did score more goals and it's only a travesty of justice that they didn't take all three points. Well, that's certainly one way of looking at it, Declan, but sky replays show that both Man City goals were indeed onside. No, they weren't. And that when Ibrahimovic did punch the ball into the back of the net, Fernandinho was lying down, injured in a different part of the pitch. However, there can't really be any complaints from Manchester United about the sending off of Ander Harari. Herrera, you just can't do that kind of thing, can you? I think you can do that kind of thing, and I really don't see why Herrera was sent off. Uh well, it was uh, clearly for strangling David Silva. That's a very naive way of looking at it. I mean, I've watched the replays and you can see very clearly that Silver's neck is in an unnatural position. It looks like it's in the exact position it should be to me, which is between his shoulders and his head. Yeah, but he thrusts his neck between the hands of Ander Herrera, who was just so startled, he didn't know what to do. So he just had a quick squeeze. He strangled him for 38 seconds until the Spaniard slumped unconscious to the floor. No, he didn't. Final question to you, Declan Forts. How can Jose Mourinho win back the fans? Losing 4 0 at home to Old Trafford in a derby is a disaster. And you could hear just how angry the fans were. A crescendo of boos as he left the field. And uh, no, they, they weren't saying boo. They were saying boo earns. Boo earns. Declan Forts, ladies and gentlemen. And this is not the twirly finger motion by the side of my head to indicate that somebody is a lunatic. I've just got a really itchy eye, and this is how I scratch it. Sky Sports News, stick with us after the break. Chris Kamara finds something that's not that funny, really very funny indeed. This is the story of the Watt. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently